This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Brandon Pollan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, F. Scott Field. And today, we're pleased to welcome a very special guest today, today's episode. We have on the one and only Dr. Rich Severin. Now, Rich Severin is a prominent physical therapy researcher, clinician, and educator. He graduated from the University of Miami Leonard M. Miller School of Medicine's DPT program in 2013, and he went on a cardiopulmonary residency at William Middleton Memorial VA Hospital, where he obtained his CCS. Now, he's currently working on his Rehabilitation Science PhD at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and he also serves as an adjunct professor teaching cardiovascular pulmonary, and he's also a research specialist at UIC. And he also serves as an adjunct assistant professor at the South College DPT program teaching cardiopulmonary assessment, and he's also a teaching assistant for physiology. Now, Rich, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming on to share your insight on these things. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, Rich, you've really been an amazing resource for me personally as someone who's just starting to look into the world of academia and kind of testing the waters to see whether or not it's a good fit for me. Uh, So I just wanted to thank you for that personally. But could you tell our audience a little bit about your journey into academia uh, and where you stand right now with your studies? Yeah, it's a little interesting, actually. You know, I, you know, I mean, it depends how far we, how far back we want to go. You know, I had, uh, you know, I was a TA in, in undergraduate at Penn State for anatomy. You know, that's probably where my formal experiences in, in academia began. We could go back further. I was, I was, a, I was a camp counselor for many years. But, but yeah, uh, and even, even then, um, in undergrad, I had an idea that I wanted to be involved in research and in teaching to some degree. And then, you know, in terms of PT education, I, Got my experiences during residency where I, I kind of developed a uh, recitation program as part of my program, which has been kind of unique. I've kind of been the guinea pig for quite a few programs and been able to script certain things for programs and, and for myself to a degree. But what really things opened up to kind of where I am now in the past, or at least the past three years, was an opportunity presented itself My uh, when I was doing this orthopedic residency and research track kind of program here at UIC, where I was brought on as an adjunct to help out with a couple courses, and then the course director position kind of fell into my lap. And then, you know, I've kind of taken it from there. So that's where it kind of began. But I, I've always had this interest in in, um, in being involved just because I, I, for me, how I want to transform the profession, I think my best avenue is through through students and through my research and sharing research and, you know, being that kind of, you know, being a knowledge translator in some regards. Cool. No, that's awesome. And, you know, Rich, I know you're currently undergoing and working on your PhD, but for our audience who really isn't really too sure about how it works, can you tell us a little bit about your PhD process from like the application to the work and responsibilities that you have? 
Yeah, it's it'll vary for every person because there there's part time PhD programs, there's you know full time PhD programs on site, you know versus partially off site. The difficult thing is, unlike when you apply to PT school, there really isn't like a standardized application form or system. You kind of have to figure some things out by yourself. And you know, for me, that involve a lot of cold emails to professors and talking to colleagues of mine or current professors who who knew people who are doing work. But yeah, it's just a lot of cold emails and asking people, hey, you know, I've, I've read some of your work, you know, would you be, you know, interested in pursuing, uh, you know, or taking on any students? Because sometimes like, you know, they may be more than willing to take on students, but they might not have funding at the moment, or they may have too many students kind of in their line or their pipeline. So it's kind of like an organized chaos in some regards as far as applying to PhD programs, because it's, it's dependent on a lot of things, you know, availability of spaces, funding, and, and just finding someone who does work that you're interested in, or runs a lab that you, you feel that you're going to benefit from. And my current mentor here, Shane Phillips, I mean, I, I chose him as a mentor, you know, and I, and I looked at a few programs at Iowa and had some uh, some opportunities possibly at, at UAB, you know, and a lot of my decisions were based on what they were doing and, you know, and what I'd be able to kind of get out of the program, like what, like how this would align with my long-term goals. And for me, it was really important to be in a program that had PTs doing research because for, for a lot of just kind of personal reasons and professional reasons, Reasons, but you know, they kind of knew where I was coming from and knew the kind of background and training that I already had. I mean, my mentor is he's a PT, he went, you know, went to Marquette and he's, you know, full on into research now. And he has a degree, he has a PhD in physiology. So he has a very well-rounded training and knowledge. And so that's kind of how, what led to my decision. What he's really, really good at, he's good at a lot of things, was, is writing papers and, and writing grants. And for me, you know, really for anyone as a researcher, grant writing and, and pa- publications are kind of the corner of the realm. Those were thing, areas that I was pretty weak in and I wanted to get better at. And I, I knew if I went there, I'd, I'd be able to get the training and the experiences that I'd, I'd be able to advance my my skills in my career. So so that's kind of why I chose it. And as far as applying, I had again looked at a couple programs and I talked to people who knew him, um, who knew Shane, and uh, they all recommended him. And that's something you kind of have to do too, just to see if you fit. Fortunately, I had been there for a year and knew, and knew people who knew him, kind of knew the lab culture and knew some of the people there, um, which made my transition into the, into the PhD program much more easier. Wow, great insight as to f- the process, Rich. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah. So you're you're working on your dissertation now, right? Wh- wh- oh no, no, see- no, 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 not working on my dissertation. I'm almost there. I'm gotcha, almost there. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So still a couple classes left, and then the dissertation process starts. Well, actually, I'm I'm done classes. The big thing now is in the fall I'll be taking what we call qualifying exam. Ah uh, yes, um, which is a pretty serious test. You get five questions. You usually pick three from oh, them, wow. and you write for ten hours to answer them. Right, um, right. So yeah, that's that's coming up, and yeah, and the way it's done, you kind of like make a list of papers that you're supposed to read. You kind of do that with your committee and with, with your PhD mentor. So that is coming, and then after that, then yeah, dissertation phase and awesome. stuff. Awesome. Yeah. So so let's fast forward to the future a little bit here. You finish your dissertation. Where do you see your academic career going after that? You know, who knows? No, I'm joking. But uh, as far as my academic career, you know, a core faculty position and hopefully somewhere that I can do a bit of research, you know, or do a lot of bit of research. I mean, that's kind of why I came uh, here to do this PhD and a lab that will, uh, you know, allow me to integrate some of the stuff that we've done. Because a lot of a lot of my interests involve, of course, cardiopulmonary topics and respiratory physiology specifically, but, you know, integrating into other areas of practice, something like that, a diverse, well-supported department that's got, um, you know, that's got a track record for 
producing good research. So that's where I would like to see myself at as far as my core position. And I always have little side projects and stuff. You know, again, like I, I'm very interested in knowledge translation and getting information to clinicians because, you know, what we, we end up finding, a, you know, we end up finding in, re- in academia is that we write these papers and they're not always read. And they're not always read because they're not always accessible or in a consumable format for clinicians. Yeah, agree. Uh, much less the public. <laughs> so, here, here. yeah, Absolutely. so try, trying yeah. to get have opportunities for that in a department that and that's kind of what I, I enjoy about UIC in particular, where I've been at for my PhD studies and with Shane, he's really kind of good at, there's things you have to get done for the lab, but you know, if you can take care of your business for the lab, like one, he'll give you opportunities to do other things like, you know, review papers or help formulate new studies and stuff like that. But if you want to go do something a little bit different, like a side project that's going to be useful for your career, he's going to let you do it. You know, cause he, he realizes that course publications and grant writing and all these things, presentations are important, but academia is kind of changing. You know, we got to have to be a bit more uh, forward thinking of how we, you know, our scholarly activity and, and what we do as far as impact into the communities that, you know, we, we serve. I love bit, that we're changing. Bit of a broad answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah that. No, 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 that's, I mean, that's great. I love hearing that. Awesome. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. So, you know, Rich, of course, we all know that, you know, as physical therapists, there's many different roles we can go into from clinician, researcher, educator, business owner, advocacy, and the list goes on and on. But say, for example, someone who's relatively younger, perhaps a DPT student or relatively new grad is kind of have their mindset on academia. What are some steps that you would recommend to a DPT student or to a relatively new grad who's considering going into academia for a role as an associate professor? And are there any sort of prep actions that they can do or things they can get involved in that may help them in finding a job in that area? Yeah, so I do want to clarify one thing. Associate professor means someone who's advanced a, a tenure track position. So I don't know of anyone jumping right into that per se. But yeah. do you mean like associate faculty, like an adjunct faculty kind of position? Is that is that what you? Okay, okay, cool. There are some people who, who enter into that position, but they're usually a bit more experienced. But so I'll, I'll say this: academia is a kind of a broader term for the profession of higher and higher education, institutions of higher education, because that inc- that includes researchers and that also includes teachers, educators, and you can be both. And usually you do a little bit of both. You know, if people want to get into academia and they don't necessarily have a PhD, you know, and PT, that's something they can do. As long as you have a clinical specialization, you know, I think CAPD requires programs that have 50% of their departments um, with at least a, ter- with a terminal degree, which would be a PhD, EDD, doctor of science kind of thing, you know, in addition to their DPT. But you can, you can still apply for positions just with your DPT in a clinical specialization. Um, we have a few faculty in our, in our department here who are who fit that role. They're more clinical faculty. They're probably not going to be on a tenure track per se. And again, that depends on the mission of the university. Like we're a research one university, UIC. Like we when we produce a lot of really good research, a lot of really good researchers. But yeah, the, the, uh, as far as getting started, you know, if you don't have a clinical specialization and something you want to do, the biggest thing you do is probably reach out to a program near you. I, mean, I know that may not be possible, but for everybody because you know if you're in a more rural area you might not have a program around you but that's usually the first part is ask like hey like can i be involved with like taing here and there and you know and i've kind of done that with some of my colleagues here that i you know for courses that i've taught you know people that i know that are interested in academia I'm like hey like could you come help with us and then it'll give you a, you know, a bit of experience you kind of kind of get a feel for what you want to do if it's something that you're interested in and um it just gets your foot in the door it really just you know that's the first step is just kind of you know making sure programs around you are know who you are and just kind of keeping your ear to the ground for opportunities as they present themselves. 
Yeah, I think definitely the opportunity has to be there, you know, yeah. and like you said, it's not always possible for everybody, but I also think it's what you make of it too. If you really yeah. want that yeah. opportunity, you can find one. You just got to put in the effort. Yeah, and, and I think people often for, forget, and um, Trent Salo, guys, I don't know if you guys know who he hit, who he is. He went to the University of St. Augustine, um, went to Calvin College, which was up in Michigan, and uh, Trent, Trent's one is an awesome person, love that guy, great person, but uh, he teaches in an, like an undergraduate program, like he, he he's not as much in the clinic now, and there's an opportunity for him to take a faculty position back in his alma mater, his undergraduate college. They don't do a lot of research, they don't have a graduate college, but they do like master's programs. I don't think they have any PhDs for like kinesiology. So he teaches some graduate courses, teaches some undergraduate courses, but he has no terminal degree. He may work on one in the future, but he's a DPT and he's teaching in academia and in, in more like in traditional academia, like academic programs versus a clinical or professional program. I would love to see more DPTs doing that, like getting involved in those kind of programs, which I think would demonstrate to a lot of colleges, institutions, like the, the broad knowledge that PTs like possess, you know, we, we right. can teach some of these some of these courses and, and be useful um, yeah. it's something to think about as well you know and, and and again like people have done it you know Trent, trent's one of them you know, hopefully that's going to be on the horizon for a lot a lot more people yeah for sure so not even just taking yeah the fact that we can teach way more than just Definitely. physical therapy stuff and even with physical therapy is such a broad term for a lot of different content that just is not necessarily physical therapy related that can overlap to others so i think that's a good point yeah absolutely and then people forget too pta programs always need a little bit of help too so you know, the DPT doesn't train you just to be a PT. It trains you how to think like a PT and, and then the knowledge that comes with it. And, and I think, you know, it's, you know, and that translates to like business. It translates to academia and it translates to other things, community advocacy. You know, it's, it's not like an input output kind of thing. It's like a, it's a body of knowledge that you learn. That's how I view it. Yeah. Good point. Good point, Rich. Do you have any recommendations for like pitfalls or things that students should avoid that may delay progress toward uh, maybe entering? Yeah, don't wait. Um, you know, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's honestly, it, it gets harder. So, I mean, and by that, I mean, like, if you really want to be full on and, um, like get, like, and do like a PhD and like, you know, or terminal degree, like that's more what I'm referring to. Like, if you want to get, if you want to go that route, you know, don't wait. Cause the longer you wait, the harder it is. to sometimes transition out of the clinic to like a terminal degree kind of uh, situation. But, uh, it, other than that, you know, if, unless, you know, if that's not your interest, keeping opportunities as they are and really go go into academia if, if it interests you like if you if you're if you're not certain maybe try like an adjunct role or lab assistant role but don't jump into positions that like you that you don't know you don't necessarily know what you're getting yourself into like start like kind of temper your yourself into it and and again if you want to do a terminal degree though like phd doctor science like again like the longer you stay out the harder it typically is there are people who do it who have families and, and kids and stuff like that and responsibilities other than themselves like I, one of my colleagues does it and i, and I don't know how he does it. He's a remarkable guy. But, you know, I know for myself, it would, it would be very challenging to have other responsibilities like that. So those, those are some things to concern yourself with. Yeah, for sure. And kind of going off what you were talking about, Rich, about the different types of degrees, you know, between the PhD, just out of curiosity, from your point of view, what are the big differences between a PhD versus an EDD? Yeah, so these are both terminal degrees. So if you if you are pursuing your career in academia, particularly in a professional PT program, again, like you don't necessarily need to have a, one of these degrees. 
it definitely helps your odds in some regards of getting a position and it kind of cements you into that position because like again like programs at maximum can have 50 percent non-terminal degrees but um you know i don't think there's a maximum for terminal degrees. you know program could have 100 percent terminal degrees so your, your odds for keeping your position long term are enhanced with your terminal degree but between the two so a phd can be in a lot of different things most pts who pursue it do it in something related to physical therapy like exercise phys biomechanics bioengineering or we have these rehab science degrees and it, it trains you to be a researcher it trains you to be a self-sustaining researcher it'll depend on the field phd trains you to be a researcher now a doctor of education or educational doctorate that's more focused on like the profession of teaching or there's probably a r- research component to a degree but it does not train you to be a researcher it's not like it's a different purpose so it counts as a terminal degree so some people who you know want to stay in academia long term but don't are not really there to be researchers they're there to be teachers sometimes they'll, they'll pursue an edd some people actually pursue phds in educational psychology as well so there's there's that option too and then there's a doctor of science now the doctor of science you, you've probably seen and there's people have it it's whether it's scd or dsc now that will depend on the field it's more similar to the phd in some respect it's more highly regarded in, in in some respects in pt like in like pertaining to our practice the doctor of science in, in most programs it's more geared to what I call clinician researchers. So they get a little bit of research experience, but there's like a clinical arm to their program. Like I have a colleague of mine, Brad Myers, great guy, was a residency mentor of mine. He's doing his doctor of science in manual therapy. So like that's again, like a clinically oriented, he's doing research, he's doing a dissertation and stuff, but it's a little bit different. He's not doing it to be a self-sustaining researcher. It's more like profession specific. So Again, like PhD, that starts a conversation. You can you can kind of assume in a certain sense that person has some research training. They you know how to write a protocol, get grants, publications, uh, how to train graduate students. An EDD, more of a focus on education, and a doctor of science in a PT related field may be more oriented to like clinical research and, a, and a training of clinician researchers. Yeah, that, that's a great summary, Rich. Have you noticed any stylistic differences or departmental differences by any professors that were PhDs versus EDDs or, you know, doctor of science? Uh, for me, as far as teaching, not not appreciably. And, that, and that's like the interesting conversation because people who have a doctor of science who are really good at research, <laughs> like really, really good at research, you know, and again, you can have people who end up getting a PhD and just teach, you know. So it's really and, maybe more individual. It's It's the actual individual that might make the differences in the degree. Well, there's always like individual differences with across anything, introducing myself or being introduced to some of a PhD for someone and some of a D, doctor of science, you know, who are both PTs. The conversation point would start differently with someone with a PhD. You would kind of expect certain things from a PhD versus a doctor of science, but gotcha. there's always gotcha. individual variances cool. within it. Depending on the field, it might be a little bit different, but in our field, like, you know, there may be a little bit of a blending, but in our field, like there's some pretty distinct differences across the overall Rich, kind of going back to, you know, before we were kind of talking about, you know, briefly the associate professor, of course, how that requires a tenure track. Personally, do you plan on pursuing a tenure track position? And if so, or even frankly, if not for that matter, can you let us know a little about that process? Now, granted, we know it's a little different for every school and every program, but do you think you could just give us a general flow of that process and kind of how it works? 
Yeah, I'm still, I'm not at that, at that point yet. I'm still, you know, I'm still, you know, finishing stuff up, but I know people who have advanced through tenure and my, my, my professor, my mentor here, he, he just got full tenure. So the interesting thing is people, I think, don't realize tenure does not mean you're just done work. Like that's it. Like they still expect you to work and like produce research. It just, you can't get like fired for like what you say to a degree. It gives you some defense and it gives you some like stability, but like, it's not a guarantee. Like they still expect you to work. A common like stigma when people think of like tenure professors like they're accomplished they're not done but yeah I, I do plan on pursuing it just because just you know it's it's kind of the ultimate goal of, a, of an academic and then as a researcher and again that will kind of vary on the program so I know people at certain PT programs that have a very limited scholarly track record or productivity compared to colleagues of mine at, at other institutions who publish a lot more so it, sometimes it depends on the institution again if you're a research one university for you to get tenure you're going to have to produce a lot of research and often similarly to other fields now pts and pt researchers there's been some published data don't compared to other fields don't produce as much research throughout their career we're growing in that field but you know so like the scholarly demands for a pt professor may be a lot less than someone maybe in like exercise physiology or chemistry or biology so that that's something to to realize too so we'll vary often by your discipline the program and then a the department what's you know reasonable for them so what they will look Look at against your scholarly publications, like how the number, the impact of them. Sometimes, if you're a smaller field or a niche field or an area where it's really hard to get published, the number may not matter as much. Um, it may matter like more like like the journal or like the impact of the paper. They'll look at uh, grant funding. So, like, are you able to self-sustain yourself? Like, are you able to bring in money from external sources into the university? They'll look at service. So, like, professional service. Like, do you serve on any committees nationally or internationally? Do you serve on committees within the community and do you serve on committees within the institution those are important and then like teaching is usually in some programs included on there have you been active in that and some programs add in different things but those are the, those are the biggest things your, your scholarly publications so in manuscripts and journals textbook chapters and lay journals might count you know a little bit your grant funding and then service and then teaching to a degree it's a long process. Like there's usually the review sometimes like depending on the university it can take like a year. Like you start, like you submit like the process for advancement, like maybe in the fall and by the spring or the end of the spring, like they'll make a decision. And it can be stressful because like depending on the school, you may only get like two shakes at it at making like that, you know, associate rank. Maybe you look for a different opportunity, but, but that's everyone's most people's ultimate goal, especially if they're in a research position. And that's kind of what I'm, you know, hoping to do at some point. Cool, man. And thanks for that clarification on that topic, because that's something, you know, I haven't had much experience with, you know, not being in the education realm. So I think that's really good for audience to hear. One thing that we haven't talked about yet, you know, for someone who's going into it, another aspect that is worth considering to at least have a discussion about is how is it in terms of salary? Do you think you could kind of briefly tell us a little bit about the financial aspect and kind of the ROI within certain realms? And granted, I realize that that's very specific depending on the individual and the program, but it, can you give us at least kind of just a generalized process? process and kind of what determines that? So we're speaking from the perspective of PT programs. I mean, clinical programs, typically your salaries tend to be a bit better. I have friends who started like an assistant professorship position in like English and they're making like $40,000, $45,000 a year, you know, with a PhD. <laughs> and usually those PhDs sometimes are like eight years for English. You know, they're very, very long. You know, so it'll, it'll depend on that, the field. But P PT programs, you tend to do pretty well. I know average, I think nationally for an assistant professor is between seventy-five dollars and eighty, eighty thousand. 
in and you, you get, you know, it goes up each rank associate to full professor. And, and it will vary by the program. If you're a smaller teaching institution, you know, you're, you're probably not looking at huge salaries because what, what really makes your money or make, what really determines your salary to, to a degree is it's your grant football fund. program, right? Uh not 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 exactly. Um, it's the it's the grant funding. I'm joking. I'm um, joking. So if you if you can pursue extramural grants, so another thing too, if you're a tenure track position, you're expected to fund part of your salary through grants. Like you were, that's an, I think that's a common misnomer. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. Like that. Wow. That's um, intense, man. Yeah. So like, and that's why like, it's really important for you, not only for your like rank and tenure, but like your sustainability of that program. Cause like if you're tenure track, they expect you to fund your line. It's not every year. Cause like, you know, sometimes you don't get funding, but, and it will vary because PT programs again are a little different than other areas. Cause it's, it's just a different kind of department. You know, I, you know, I know some people that's like a 50% contribution. Wow. They're expected to pay it, you know, their, their line of line of salary from their grant funding. So yeah, there's a common misnomer that like, you're 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 paying for your professor's salary and sometimes like you're not really at all actually like they may be completely self-funding themselves and so something something to consider salary can be pretty comfortable though you know you're you're not going to be in a pt program as an academic like you're going to live pretty comfortably compared to colleagues in other disciplines or other fields but it's it's pretty comfortable and again like and then like a lot of your salaries are 10 month contracts so usually like people use a summer to get their writing done or they'll use it to teach like continue education or other opportunities and stuff like that. So you know, there's there's opportunities to, to do that. And usually within your contract, even during the year, you get sometimes maybe up to two weeks of like non-departmental time that you can dedicate. And that's like, it's total hours, which, you know, amounts about two weeks, maybe of doing something or maybe an a, like a eight hours a week or something like that. Um, you can dedicate to non-university activities, um, which could be con ed, could be consulting, could be product development and stuff like that. And then in product development, too, like a lot of universities are encouraging professors to develop patents, even in PT, because, again, like grant funding's kind of drying up. You got to be creative with your financial sources. And so a lot of universities are developing these centers where they will help you get the patent, help you formulate your product. It will stay with the university. You'll split the patent 50-50, but you get the, the resources of the university to defend your patent and to implement it. So that's something to consider as well. Opportunities for additional compensation. So really like your salary in academia, you know, you get, you get a pretty comfortable base in some regards. And then like what you want to make of it is really kind of dependent on what you want to do and how much free time you end up having. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's really helpful and insight. And I'm just astonished that, you know, they have to get their own salary, like we were telling about, like, that's, that's not what I thought at all, in all honesty. So yeah, it'll depend on the on the institution. If you're a smaller school, like the, the scholar demands will be won't be as high in PT programs. The demands typically aren't as high and a lot of professors aren't funding their, their own lines. But there are some that do. Like if you go to research one university and you got professors who are tenure track or, or, or who are tenured and like PhD researchers, like they're probably funding a good bit of their own salary, especially if they're not teaching a lot. You know, it's, it, you know, it's just a university wide policy usually for research one universities. Rich, I'm going to switch gears again. I know I say that a lot, but I know you've done a ton of work, you know, related to the cardiovascular realm of PT. And do you think you can enlighten our audience who perhaps doesn't know about the work you've done with the Vitals or Vital Movement? 
I'm glad that we're, we're even talking about this because when I set off and trying to get this get this going, you never really know how well it's going to take. And the fact that like people are even calling it a movement to a degree and people are talking about it and people, besi- people besides me are talking about it. That's always good to hear. And then it's a lot of like newer graduates talking about it too, which is I think going to allow us to transform the profession to doing something. So uh, the Vitals are Vital movement, people can look it up, hashtag Vitals are Vital, is a movement that I created with the help of some others and kind of caught wind, but it's to raise awareness the importance of taking resting hemodynamics or heart rate and blood pressure on every new patient on new evaluations and we, we gave a talk at CSM about it with Kyle Ridgeway from Colorado and Matt Lee down, down from Core in Kentucky about like the importance of this and things we can do it's translated into a, a resource for the APTA we've got a course with that we're working on a paper or I'm working on a paper now with hopefully we'll get the one of the blood pressure standards committee members to help oversee it so the, the, the purpose of this was was threefold you know to, to highlight like the importance of it, why we why we need to do it, and then provide you know statistics on like where we're at as a profession. There's a great paper that came out of PTJ in 2002 by Ethel Freeze out of St. Louis University, which looked at behaviors and attitudes of PTs regarding screening, and they weren't too great. We're talking about you know six six and four percent respectively for heart rate and blood pressure on every new patient across disciplines, across like settings, like you know inpatient, outpatient. So what we did kind of followed suit with that. We did a large national sample. I think the largest survey to date of that for that question is, I mean, it's, it's it, we got a huge data set. We're publishing that soon, hopefully in a couple of journals, but that's coming out soon. We presented it at, at CSM. So part of it was, you know, again, the social media presence. Then we, we you know, we did our survey to identify the problem, identify the causes for why this happens, which I think is important. Like, you know, you want to highlight the problem and highlight the solutions to the problem, which we found to be more education and policy based, which which is good. So it means we can change that and then provide resources to translate knowledge to practice. Um, we're hoping to make this publication on the on the uh, survey open access as well as the guidelines we're looking to recommend for screening behaviors open access to pa- so clinicians can access it. So we have this three pronged approach to raising awareness and translating knowledge into practice behaviors. Um, and again, it's around blood pressure. So hopefully in the next years, this, this movement. Will, will be beyond the movement is something we do in practice. Yeah, Rich, thanks for your work on that. I've actually started, as of CSM, uh, taking blood pressures and, and heart rate readings and stuff on all my patients just as a personal thing now that I feel better about doing. I, I don't know that I can make it across my whole company because it's it's a very corporate structured company, but you know, I'm, I'm pushing, I'm trying, but we'll, we'll see if, uh, if they'll cave a little bit on that. But uh, yeah, thanks for your work on that. Um, I want to go back to your TA days a little bit, you know, and you're, you're even back as far as your camp counselor days. Um, yeah. What are some of the favorite techniques? techniques that you have uh, that you like to use when educating students to not only keep their attention, but, you know, really keep them engaged to make sure they're retaining content. The biggest thing I find that might help is I try to make things as clinically relevant as possible. And I, this is more particular to PTs. For example, cardiopulmonary, most people aren't, aren't going to go into that field. Like it's just kind of like what it is, but they need to understand why it's relevant. And I, and I think, you know, that's kind of where the vital movement kind of was geared towards. That's how I teach my class. Like we cover heart failure, we cover COPD and heart disease and all the other conditions. But we talk about how do you screen for, you know, defects, congenital defects in pediatric patients? How do you screen for patients at risk for studying cardiac death and athletes? You know, what are the concerns in geriatric patients, patients of neurological conditions, uh, patients you, you encounter in orthopedic practice? It's all about the hook in a certain sense. Find something that people are interested in and then it's kind of scale your 
your your your conversations from there. I find you know repetition helps. You know, like going back through things through my courses, like and through my lectures, I'll repeat things. I actually get quite a bit of feedback from students that, like that they like it. You know, giving relatable and real life situations I think helps people kind of remember things that remember stories more than facts. You know, a little bit of humor sometimes helps. You got to kind of have to be careful with that. You kind of have to read your your audience, your students to a degree. But yeah, those are those are some things I think that have helped me big time. So Rich, kind of with that being said, you know, finish up each episode with this question because we're always curious to see what everyone's thoughts are and opinions are on this one. So the question would be, if you could change one aspect of higher education, DPT or other healthcare education related, what aspect would you change and how? I can only pick one. <laughs> yeah, go for it, man. Um, <laughs> Feel free to win, man. Oh, man. Away. Oh, man. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that we do really well. A lot of things that we could do better. I think incentivizing, this is a, for higher education in general, this, this, this kind of concept, incentivizing like academics to do like for other things besides just their scholarly publications, like their social impact of their work, lay people publications, social media activity. We're seeing that more from um, some institutions like Mayo Clinic has this now in, in the rank and tenure, their social media activity for certain professors as part of the rank and tenure, um, or that it can, it can be a component of it, which I think is great. Because there's a lot of nonsense, or I call it intellectual noise, that exists in everywhere, really. But in healthcare, we have a penchant for it, or, or you know, for this um, kind of nonsensical things existing and perseverating and permeating and perpetuating. And I think where that problem generates from or emanates from is we have a knowledge gap, right? And if you guys are familiar with that, and our audience may be familiar with that, where there's this sometimes a difficulty of translating published work to clinical practice and then into the public in general. And, you know, there's that famous statistic. 17 years, something to be published to get into practice, something like that. Some people have actually say it's probably closer to 10 or 7 or 10 years, not actually 17. But either way, there's a gap. And there's a gap in knowledge in general of what we understand about the world around us. So when we write our publications, they're written by scholars. They are submitted to scholarly journals, reviewed by other researchers, reviewed by other scholars, and then published in journals, typically for the intention of being read by other scholars, in journals that typically academics only have access to. So that creates almost a closed loop, insular nature. Now, like, we're, we've done better with public access to science through the through PubMed and, and PubMed Central, which is an open, open source area. But this closed loop has allowed insular nature, and there's there's basically pe- people who want information about their health, about their problems, you know, they don't have access to the published work by researchers who really know what they're talking about. So who fills that gap? It's people who are looking to make a quick buck by selling some kind of, you know, silver bullet contrived treatment. And when there's no countering voice from academia, that problem is always going to exist. My, my dad kind of gave me this lesson very early in life that, you know, if there's a if there's a gap or a role that you're supposed to be fulfilling and you're not, someone else will. That happens in healthcare because of the, I think, the insular nature of academia. Like, people don't have access to information that's consumable. And then clinicians, too. Like, and I, I can empathize and sympathize with clinicians. It's hard to stay current with research because there's so many publications made every year. How do you know what's relevant? How do you have time to read all this stuff? I mean, there's published work suggesting that, you know, to stay current with the research, you get to read thousands of papers a year and you know and, and dedicate you know at least four hours i think a day to like reading and who what clinician has that time you know we want people to say current we haven't met them halfway so i think that's something that needs to change big time and until you incentivize it i don't blame academics for not doing it because if it's not like if you're not being paid for it's not contributing to your productive time it's taking away from things that you need to be dedicating time to so we, we need to set up infrastructure where that is 
incentivize behavior for, for academics to counter a lot of the nonsense that exists, or at least give people a discerning opinion so they can make an informed choice for themselves and informing clinicians to inform the public that they serve. So I, I think we could do a lot better job of that. And it's something that I've been trying to do through social media um, and through some of the community work that I've done here, local in Chicago, talk to the people in a language that we can use that's still accurate. That's probably, that's the biggest thing. And that's not, that's, that's not in just PT specific. That's like, that's academia in general. Got to do better at that. But in terms of PT, man, we could do better to have more standardization across uh, curriculum. You know, I, it's interesting. I, I get questions from some students from other programs sometimes, or um, new clinicians that kind of ask me things that, I mean, how have you not been taught this? Like we teach this to our students, you know, and CAPTI has requirements and stuff that are there. But yeah, I mean, there's there's wide variabilities in how curriculum is taught. Pam, Pam Bartlow, Cardi Palm in general, you know, published a paper on this that you know demonstrate there there is some variability on you know between who teaches a course, their qualifications, and like how it may be structured. And um, if we really want to advance our profession, I think we need to have more standardization between how we teach. And there's always going to be a little bit different, a little bit different. And I think. We talked a little bit about this in like the beginning and, and even before we before like the podcast began that there's, everyone's going to have a little bit of a bias to how they view things. But we could do a lot better to help standardize how we teach our future, you know, our future colleagues who are going to be serving and representing our profession. I've been in, involved in some projects now, South College. It's, I think like that's part of the mission to keep things more standardized across professions. And, you know, I have a few colleagues now at other institutions that we're working together to at least make our cardiopulmonary curriculum more consistent between a few different programs, which I think is um, is huge. Because, like, I mean, like, there shouldn't be wide variability between how content and curriculum is taught. Like, it, I mean, there shouldn't be that wide of a, of, a, of a variability. But, again, it's that insular nature. It goes back to, back to the point I made before, that insular nature of academia. Got to do a bit better of, of being a little bit more, um, a bit more open and, and collaborative. Yeah, well said. Yeah, bravo, Rich. Well, well put. Yeah. Um, Rich, thanks so much for coming on the podcast to chat with us tonight. It was awesome. Um, could you let our audience know where they can find you on online and social media? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I guess, um, I've, you know, I, I, I must have kind of fell into this on uh, a little bit of dumb luck. Um, uh, or just good fortune. My website is ptreviewer.com. It's a resource, um, for like cardiopulmonary topics. Got some stuff on there. And then we got, you know, some my random blogs. We got some other projects coming along. You can find me at twitter.com slash PT Reviewer at PT Reviewer, Facebook.com slash PT Reviewer. Everything is just PT Reviewer. So if you Google that, that will show up. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, Rich. Well, they, again, thank you so much for this really enlightening and insightful take because I think this has really helped open up and kind of explore a little bit more about, you know, learning a little bit about the process of academia and what's really going on in there. I think that's very helpful to our audience. So thank you so much for coming on. Hey guys, thanks for having me, man. It's a great, great conversation. Then uh, I, uh, I will, will apologize for a little bit. I, I kind of get on a soapbox sometimes. My students can kind of tassel. I'll, I'll go off on these tangents sometimes. They're just, you know. But uh, you're passionate about some, you know, things. Sometimes it's, it's, it's easy. The words come, come easily. Hey, it's cool, man. We welcome it. We welcome all that kind of talk on here because we feel like it needs to get out. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, 
Extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.